Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is Military Murder, a show where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. This week, we are celebrating Veterans Day. Woo woo! I just want to take a minute to thank all of the veterans who are listening. Thank you so much for all that you have sacrificed. The burden is heavy to bear, and only those who serve can ever truly understand the sacrifice. This week, we not only celebrate veterans, but over here at Mama Margot Productions, we are officially celebrating three years of producing this show. You might not recall, but on the first release week, three years ago, I gave you three horrible stories of murder in the military, including the brutal decapitation of Gregory Glover, the Eastburn family murders, and the worst colonel that we know of, Canadian Colonel Russell Williams. And that was the start of sad story after sad story. For today's episode, things are going to get even sadder because I am bringing you the story of a case where 26 people lost their lives, dozens more were forever changed, all in the span of seven minutes. And not only that, they were all sitting at church on a Sunday. This case changed the way that I approached church. I now look around just a little bit more. I look for ushers that might be secretly armed because church used to be a sanctuary, a place where you leave your troubles at the door. But sometimes evil walks in carrying an AR-15, destined to take as many lives as possible. Due to the amount of information about what happened that frightful day five years ago on November 5th, 2017, this will be a two-part episode. Both parts will be available immediately to my patrons and Apple Premium subscribers. For everyone else, part two will come out in two weeks. You can join my Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash military murder. Join me today as I tell you the tragic story of the Sutherland Springs church shooting at the hands of former airman Devin Patrick Kelly. Now, let's dig in. Before I begin, just a disclaimer that this story involves a mass shooting, a massacre, and children did die. Listener discretion is advised. My sources for this episode include the Department of Defense Inspector General Report of Investigation, Court Transcript Records, Find a Grave Sites for Various Victims, and articles in the New York Times, NBC News, Express News, CNN, Texas Tribune, Washington Post, KEPR-TV, Ken's 5, The Guardian, and Courthouse News. Before the shooting at Sutherland Springs, I had never heard of the town, and it's probably because it is such a small town in big old Texas. Of the town, the Express News reports that it is right outside of San Antonio. It is a small and unincorporated town with two gas stations, a post office, and a church at its center. It boasts only 600 residents, So yeah, I think it's safe to say it's a small town. And just as reported, at the center of the town is a church. It's the First Baptist Church located at 216 East 4th Street. 
A look at their church website describes that Sunday church service starts at 9.15 a.m. with fellowship breakfast, followed by Sunday school for an hour. Then at 10.45 a.m., church members greet each other and take their seats. And by 11 a.m., the church service begins, likely with announcements and worship songs. Well, at least that's how it was supposed to go. But on Sunday, November 5th, 2017, 26 worshipers lost their life in the middle of service when evil walked right through the front doors. On that Sunday morning, the church pastor, Pastor Frank Pomeroy, was not at the service. He had been traveling. In his place giving that Sunday's sermon was Associate Pastor John Bryan Holcomb. He went by Bryan. That morning, as Pastor Bryan was walking up to the stage, his wife, Carla Holcomb, was delivering their announcements to the congregation. At the time, there were a few people who were in the sound booth. When all of a sudden, at 11.15 a.m., shots rang out right outside the church. As reported by the Express News, some people thought it was fireworks going off right outside the church. But then, three minutes later, when holes started popping through the back of the church, all hell broke loose. It was now 11.18 a.m., and in walked a man wearing all black with a mask, military-style tactical gear, and a bulletproof vest. The man was carrying a large gun, and as he walked in, he yelled, Everybody die! And then he opened fire. It was an absolute nightmare of bullets spraying all over the place, but not just randomly placed. This man was aiming directly at people's heads, bodies. As churchgoers dropped under pews to take cover, the man with the gun appeared drawn to any place where he heard crying or screams. As the man opened fire, the church filled with smoke, which only made it difficult to see and breathe. After his bullets were spent, the man exited the church, but then moments later, he re-entered, seemingly with a fully loaded gun and continued the terror. Finally, at 11.23 a.m., the man exited the First Baptist Church for the final time. When the man exited the church, a couple that I will call the Smiths saw him exit and they reported that the man looked methodical, like a robot. In actuality and thinking back, they said the man looked possessed. At the time that the gunfire opened up at the church, a nearby resident by the name of Stephen Williford heard the gunfire. And well, this is Texas, but the rapid fire and likely accompanying screams made it evident that people needed help. So Stephen grabbed his own AR-15 and ran outside barefoot. And well, Stephen has probably been to the range a time or two because when he saw the gunman outside, he shot at him, hitting him in the back and the left leg. According to the Smiths who watched this interaction, when the gunman was shot, it appeared that he kind of like snapped out of it. The gunman dropped his AR, jumped into his SUV and sped off. While this is all happening, there is a man driving by named Johnny Langendorf. He slows down just as the gunman took off and barefoot Stephen told Johnny what was happening. And then he said, we got to get him. So Stephen jumped into Johnny's car. I'm not even sure if they knew each other, but it's a small town, so it's possible. While they were chasing the gunman at excess speeds of 95 miles per hour, Johnny dialed 911. Mind you, 911 was getting calls off the chains because any survivors inside the church with access to a phone were already on the line. But Johnny is on this guy's heels and he is relaying where the guy is and where he's heading. Roughly 11 miles north of Sutherland Springs, the gunman lost control of his SUV and crashed into a ditch. Johnny stopped at a safe distance, kind of safe, I don't know, 25 yards. 
barefoot hero Stephen got out of the car and aimed his firearm at the gunman. They both instructed the man to get out, but nothing happened. It must have been the longest five or seven minutes or so until police finally arrived on scene. And when they approached the SUV, the man was deceased, the result of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Inside the car were two handguns. Back at the scene of the church, it would later be determined that in the span of seven minutes and 24 seconds, a mad gunman fired 450 rounds from an AR-556 rifle, killing 26 people and injuring 22 others. The Sutherland Springs shooting, as it is currently known, occurred at the hands of an Air Force veteran by the name of Devin Patrick Kelly. Devin Kelly was born on February 12, 1991 in San Marcos, Texas. He was born to Michael and Rebecca Kelly. Devin was homeschooled for most of his life until he went to high school. Once he arrived in high school, it was reported that Devin didn't really fit in, not necessarily because of teenage angst, but because he often groped and harassed his female classmates who basically referred to him as creepy. It was reported that he had stalkerish tendencies, but as we will see played out in this case, Devin's interactions with his classmates were a sign of what was to come. The Express News reported that between 2004 and 2009, while in high school, Devin was suspended a whopping six times from New Brothels High School. His suspendable offenses included possession and sale of drugs, profane language, and insubordination. In fact, during this period, Devin was arrested for possessing marijuana. Because he was just a kid, they referred the incident to the juvenile probation office. This caused his expulsion from school. For his marijuana offense, he did six months probation and 60 hours of community service, and the matter was dismissed. Devin attended an alternative school for some time, but eventually he did return to New Brothels High, where he graduated in the spring of 2009. Weeks later, Devin, after meeting up with a recruiter, entered the delayed entry program. And six months later, on January 5th, 2010, Devin Kelly entered the United States Air Force. But he wouldn't be making the Air Force a career because after getting in trouble for abusing his wife and his stepson, on May 9th, 2014, Devin was officially discharged from the Air Force with a bad conduct discharge as a result of a court-martial. Not surprisingly, Devin's first wife, Tessa, divorced him, and soon after leaving the Air Force and moving in with his parents, Devin started dating a woman named Danielle. Eventually, they got married, had two kids of their own, and settled in a property on Devin's parents' farm. They lived in New Brothels, Texas, which is about 45 minutes from Sutherland Springs. Devin had actually attended First Baptist Church previously. That is where his mother-in-law and grandmother-in-law worshipped, and on occasion, the self-proclaimed atheist attended church there with his wife, although Devin would often laugh while at church. On Sunday, November 5th, 2017, 11 members of the Holcomb family attended service that morning. I already told you about 60-year-old John Brian Holcomb, who went by Brian. He was the associate pastor. He was at church that day with his wife, 58-year-old Carla Holcomb. Carla was a youth pastor at the church, and together they had four beautiful kids, Scott, John, Danny, and Sarah. Two of their sons were at the service that day, together with their wives, and one of their daughters-in-law was pregnant. 
Associate Pastor Brian was born to Joe and Clarice, and they all lived on the same farm. And it was on this farm where Brian started his business, the American Canvas Works. The Holcomb family was very intertwined. They were involved in all aspects of each other's lives. Brian would help his dad around the farm. Joe would help his son at his shop. And Pastor Brian's kids were close to him as well. John Porter, who was also at church that Sunday, he recalled that he often visited with his parents. They held Bible study together on Thursdays at the church, and the family had a special tradition that they called Planksgiving, where in essence, they celebrated Thanksgiving on a different day, and they all dressed like pirates. John Porter Holcomb was at church that Sunday with his pregnant wife, Crystal, and his five stepkids. Yes, prior to marrying John Porter, Crystal had been married to a man named Peter Hill. Together, they had five kids, but in 2011, after Peter died, Crystal was widowed. When she met John, they clicked, and it appeared he accepted all five of her kids as his own. Four of the five kids were at church that day, and the only one who was not present was the oldest son, Philip. The other kids were at church, and they were 13-year-old Greg Hill, 11-year-old Emily Hill, 9-year-old Megan Hill, and 7-year-old Evelyn Hill. Crystal was close to all her kids, but she was especially close with her oldest son, Philip. According to court documents prior to the shooting, Philip was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. Because of this, John Porter reported that Philip relied on his mom to help navigate the social and academic hurdles that he faced. Crystal homeschooled him. Crystal and John Porter were ecstatic to be having their first child together. They were so excited, but they hadn't yet found out the gender, although Crystal had picked her favorite boy name and girl name, and the kids just called the baby in mommy's tummy Billy Bob, which is hilariously cute. Also present at church that day was Mark Danny Holcomb, who went by Danny. He was there with his wife, Jennifer, and their 17-month-old daughter, Noah. During the shooting that day, Brian and Carla did not survive. They are the mom and the dad who were basically at the front of the church when the shooting began. According to court documents, when the church shooting began, pregnant Crystal was sitting in the pews with her four youngest children, ages varied from 11 to 7. John Porter, Crystal's husband, was in the sound booth recording the church service. And by the way, I didn't know this until I was done with my research for this case, but this actual church shooting was caught on camera. So John Porter recalled that he first noticed the first round of bullets when his mom was up giving morning announcements. But when he heard the shots, it didn't register to him. According to court records, John Porter thought it was nothing, just somebody horsing around. When it was clear, however, that this was not a joke, he took cover and dialed 911. Meanwhile, Crystal was trying to escape the main church area with her kids towards the Sunday school room. But that's when Devin noticed her trying to escape. He zeroed his sights on her, and while Crystal begged for him to spare her kids' lives, Devin shot all four of her kids, forcing her to watch, whether she wanted to or not, and then he shot Crystal. Pregnant Crystal suffered 11 gunshot wounds. A few of those shots were to her head, but according to court records, she sustained at least one gunshot wound early in the shooting and then exhibited purposeful movement in order to take cover on the floor of the church which made it clear that Crystal was alive and conscious for much of the shooting. The baby in Crystal's tummy did not survive. Three of Crystal's kids also did not survive. 13-year-old Greg, 11-year-old Emily, and 9-year-old Megan did not make it. 
Greg suffered 25 gunshot wounds. Just like his mother, the pattern of his movements on the church floor made it appear that he had been shot, tried to move, and then was shot again, signifying that Devin Kelly either shot at people and then continued on, returning at the end to shoot victims again to ensure they were dead. Emily suffered six gunshot wounds. She did not die until after the shooting inside the church had ceased. A woman named Julie attempted to carry Emily's body out of the building, but her body was so slippery from all of the blood. Little nine-year-old Megan also sustained six gunshot wounds, just like her sister, and she died under similar circumstances as her mother and brother. Miraculously, the youngest of the Hill kids survived. It was reported that after Emily's family members were shot and ultimately killed, one of them, most likely her mom, fell on the little girl. And they believe this because after the chaos ended, John Porter went over to his family where he found his wife and most of the kids. It was so chaotic that John Porter just explains that when he went over to his wife and kids, that their faces were missing from the gun blows. He did find his wife, however, protectively embracing nine-year-old Megan. John Porter didn't discover that one of his stepkids survived until after they were reunited at the hospital. Seven-year-old Evelyn Hill did not suffer not one gunshot wound. Instead, she suffered trample injuries and, of course, the mental anguish of what she saw and endured. John Porter did posthumously name the baby. He named it Carlin Bright Billy Bob because they did not know the baby's gender. John Porter just combined a girl name, a boy name, and the nickname the kids had given to the baby, Billy Bob. Danny Holcomb, the other Holcomb son present at church with his wife and child, he did not survive the shooting. He was shot in the head as he guarded his wife and young daughter. His wife, Jennifer, survived. However, 17-month-old Noah did not survive. In total, of the 11 members of the Holcomb family present at church, only three survived, the oldest son, his stepdaughter, and one of the daughters-in-law. Almost an entire family completely wiped out in seven minutes and 24 seconds. Tara McNulty was a close friend of the Holcomb family. In fact, Tara lived with Brian and Carla and even called them mom and dad. However, this does not take away from the fact that Tara was very close to her biological mother, Lisa. She was Lisa's only daughter after all. Tara graduated from Floresville High in the class of 2002. She was a faithful member of the First Baptist Church. One of her greatest joys was spending time with her two kids, 15-year-old Haley and 12-year-old James. Tara was raising her kids as a single mom, but that didn't stop Tara from encouraging her kids to get involved in sports, and of course, she would sacrifice anything for her children. When Tara was at church that Sunday, she was in attendance with her two kids and her aunt Margaret. Margaret loved Tara like a daughter because Margaret didn't have any of her own kids. When gunshots rang out in the church, 15-year-old Haley believed that it was fireworks. But when she looked at her mother, she knew this was serious as Tara pushed Haley to the ground so that they could hide under the pews. Nearby, Aunt Margaret pushed James to the ground. While Haley was hiding, she was shot multiple times. Haley turned to her mother for some comfort. All the while, Tara instructed her teenager to apply pressure to her leg wound. But the blood loss was massive, and as Haley began to lose consciousness, her vision faded and her hearing faded as well. As she was about to drift off, she turned to her mother one last time to reach out a hand of comfort. But Tara didn't move. 
When Haley couldn't feel her mom moving nor speaking, she knew that her mom was gone. And at that point, she realized there was no point in holding on. But as she lay there, Haley heard her brother James, as well as other church members, just screaming and crying. Nearby, Aunt Margaret was shielding James and covering his ears. Sadly, 33-year-old Tara suffered five gunshot wounds. She had at least one fatal shot to the head. 15-year-old Haley survived five gunshot wounds. She sustained a gunshot wound to her left chest that fractured three ribs and caused internal bleeding. She also had bruising and tearing of her lung tissue. While Haley suffered a gunshot to the left leg, which resulted in loads of blood loss, the gunshot avoided all major nerves and arteries. 12-year-old James suffered three gunshot wounds. His left shin was shot and his tibia was shattered. James was also shot in the arm and the blast was so excessive that the flesh on his arm was torn and was just hanging off of his bone. James experienced a prolonged recovery to his injuries and post-surgery. Aunt Margaret was also shot. She suffered three gunshot wounds to the leg, ankle, and wrist. For two months, she had to use a wheelchair but eventually was upgraded to a walker and a cane. What I didn't learn until after looking into this case was that many victims of the Sutherland Springs church shooting were military members, veterans, and even retirees. Dennis Neal Johnson Sr. was a church elder, and he had been with First Baptist Church for a decade. Dennis was a Navy Reserve and Army National Guard veteran. Dennis loved working in the yard. Dennis was married to Sarah Louise. Together, they had four kids. But in their aging years, they were also helping to raise two of their granddaughters. Sadly, there is evidence that Dennis was one of the first people shot by Devin. It was reported that 77-year-old Dennis was shot at least twice while seated upright in the pew as Kelly fired from outside of the church. He then took cover under a pew where he also hid his wife. However, when Devin Kelly entered the church, Someone near Dennis and Sarah was screaming, causing Devin to focus his efforts on the Johnsons. And that was when Devin shot Sarah twice in the head. Dennis then charged the gunman, but the gunman was able to pop off some shots, hitting Dennis right in the chest. Dennis then crawled back to where his wife lay and cradled her head wound. He then passed away. Also present at this Sunday morning service was Devin Kelly's grandmother-in-law his wife's grandma, Lula Lou White. Lou was a church treasurer and the director of a local food pantry. And not surprisingly, Lou was the type that was always willing to help her on the church. Sadly, Lou did not survive. Another victim was the pastor's adoptive 14-year-old daughter, Annabelle Pomeroy. On this Sunday morning, you might recall that her father, Frank, the head pastor, was out of town but that didn't stop Annabelle from sitting in the front row at church on Sundays. At the time of the shooting, Annabelle was a seventh grade student. Sadly, Annabelle did not survive. Annabelle is described as having the greatest heart. Another young victim claimed was 16-year-old Haley Kruger. Just like Annabelle, Haley was at church by herself on this day. She often volunteered at church functions, Haley was in the ninth grade at the Lavernia High School and was previously a member of the junior high choir. Haley adored kids, especially her two nephews. She had aspirations of one day being a NICU nurse. Haley had two brothers and one sister. In the years prior to the church shooting, Haley had already experienced loss. 
In fact, two years before, in 2015, Haley's father, Kurt, died. This was devastating. Not surprisingly, Haley clung to her mother, Charlene. They were inseparable, doing everything together, going to the movies, getting mini petties and shopping. Leading up to the shooting, Haley and her mom were preparing to walk a half marathon together in December of 2017. They were so serious about their training that they trained at the park six days a week. But sadly, Haley would not be walking the half marathon with her mom. On Sunday, November 5th, 2017, Charlene dropped Haley off at church early. Haley went early to help with the church breakfast. Before getting out of her car, Haley hugged her mom and gave her a big kiss. Then she jumped out and walked into the church. Had Charlene known what was about to happen, maybe they would have made different plans. Maybe she would have hugged her baby just a little bit longer. During the shooting, Haley sustained 15 gunshot wounds. There is evidence that Haley was initially shot and survived. When the shooting first started, Haley was hit and she was able to show a nearby churchgoer that she was injured. During the attack, a different churchgoer held Haley's hand, but eventually Haley was shot again. She did not survive. Haley is described by her mom as a vibrant 16-year-old that loved life. A married couple named Richard and Therese Rodriguez were in attendance on this day. They had been married for 11 years and had a blended family composed of their adult children. The Rodriguez's were longtime members of First Baptist Church. Therese was originally from Germany. She had two older sons from a previous relationship. Her sons were Ronald and Gary, and she raised her two boys as a single mom. And Therese was always there for her boys. In fact, after they were all grown, Gary stayed close by, living not more than a mile from his mom and visiting her often with his own kids. And Ronald was always around as well. At the time, Therese was also a breast cancer survivor. Her son, Ronald, described her simply as tough and wonderful. Richard, Therese's husband, also had a daughter from a previous relationship. Her name was Regina, and she was really tight with her dad, especially after she lost her own mother when she was only 18 years old. Eventually, when Regina moved out, she was so tight with her dad that she leased an apartment in the same complex as him, and he would often swing by to help her with anything she needed. Regina described that her dad was very Texas. He loved 80s music and wearing Western-style pants, boots, and hats, and she said he was very country. Sadly, the Rodriguez couple did not survive. 66-year-old Therese was shot six times. Therese was one of the first shot, even while Kelly was outside shooting into the church. She was immediately shot twice. She then took cover, but ultimately was shot when Kelly was inside the church. 64-year-old Richard sustained eight gunshot wounds, and all I will say is that he was shot all over his body. Ultimately, the evidence showed that both Therese and Richard were alive and conscious for much of the shooting. Robert and Shani Corrigan, both 51 years old, suffered similar fates to the Rodriguez's. Robert and Shani had experienced quite a long life together. They were married for over 30 years. In fact, they were high school sweethearts, marrying after graduation in 1985. Just a side note, Robert held the two-mile track record at his high school for 25 years. The couple had three sons, Forrest, Preston, and Benjamin. Robert has been described by his uncle as just straight-up loving life and being extreme about everything, and I think he meant that in a good way. He said, quote, he was a pleasure to be around, end quote. The Corgans were originally from Michigan and moved to Texas in 2009. They almost immediately became members of the First Baptist Church. 
But something you should know about the Corrigans, and this one will get you, especially my listeners, is that they were a military family. Yes, Robert Corrigan was a retired Air Force Chief Master Sergeant. He served for close to three decades. But not just that, two of his sons followed in their father's footsteps, also joining the military. Their names were Preston and Benjamin. Sadly, as reported by the Detroit Free Press, the Corrigan family suffered an immense loss almost a year prior to the shooting, when one of their sons, Forrest, completed suicide. His memorial service was held at the Sutherland Springs First Baptist Church. And then, not even a year later, the shooting took place and Robert and Shani Corrigan were at service that day, and they did not survive. Robert was shot seven times. Shani suffered nine gunshot wounds. Robert and Shani's surviving sons remember them as loving and big on spending time together, which is something I am sure they look back fondly on. Grandma Shani was always joyous, and when her son Preston had a baby, Shani went out of her way to help him and his wife. When the couple died, their son Benjamin was stationed in Japan. Joanne Ward attended church with her four kids one of which was her stepson. Joanna was only 30 years old and her kids were 9-year-old Rihanna, 7-year-old Emily, 5-year-old Brooke, and 5-year-old Ryland. Joanna was probably used to having a big family since she came from a family with nine kids and she was the youngest. Her mother, Dahlia, recalls that they spoke on the phone all the time. Joanna and her husband, Chris, were the full package. They integrated their families and even planned on having another baby in the future. The Ward family was probably one of those families that all the other families, or at least the kids, wanted to be like. First of all, they had a bunch of kids. They fostered all types of dogs. They raised chicken, ducks, and geese. And it just seems like such a fun place to be. And forget about it. Birthdays were the bee's knees at the Ward house. But over and above all, the Wards loved church. But on this day, Chris was not at church. And after the shooting, only two of the kids would survive the day. His five-year-old biological son, Ryland, and his nine-year-old stepdaughter, Rihanna. When the shooting began, the entire family, mom and the four kids, got to the ground. Joanna laid on top of the three youngest, Brooke, Emily, and Ryland. Rihanna was hiding under a pew while Joanna and the other kids were between the rows of pews. While the shooting was going on around them, and as a churchgoer attempted to hold Rihanna's hand, who was by herself, Rihanna recalled the person's arm being shot off. Rihanna could hear Ryland crying, but she couldn't hear her mom or the rest of the kids. After the shooting ceased, as first responders walked into the church to triage the victims, a volunteer firefighter by the name of Rusty Duncan saw Joanne. He just stepped right over her body because it was clear that she was dead. But just as he stepped over her, a tiny little arm grabbed his pant leg. It was five-year-old Ryland. He was underneath his mother. Rusty grabbed the boy, placing tourniquets on his arm and leg. Just as he was carrying him out of the church, Christopher Ward arrived on scene and assisted with his young son before Ryland was life-flighted to University Hospital. Ryland did survive, but he was shot five times. And since the shooting, he has undergone 34 different medical procedures and he was hospitalized for three months after the shooting. Rihanna was the only other survivor, and it appears that she did not experience any direct gunshot wounds. She did have scars on her arm and leg from being burned by the gunpowder. 
30-year-old Joanne did not survive the seven gunshots she received. It was clear she had been shot while protecting her kids. Her body was unidentifiable and she had to be identified by tattoos on her body. Five-year-old Brooke had four gunshot wounds and it is evident that she was shot while being face down. Her little body was described as follows in court records, quote, the entire back of her head was blown off, end quote. Seven-year-old Emily had five gunshot wounds. Emily was one of the first to be shot while Devin was still shooting from outside. And while she had her eyes opened when the shooting ended, she suffered extensive hemorrhaging and she later died on the operating table. As I was writing this part, my memory jumped back to various episodes of Grey's Anatomy, where all of the doctors are either waiting by the halo pad or the emergency room to start triaging all the patients. Robert Scott and Karen Marshall were very much like the Corrigan family. They had been married for 33 years and they were very much a military family. Robert went by Scott, so that's what I will call him for this episode. 56-year-old Scott was an Air Force retiree and Karen, well, she was a currently serving Air National Guard Master Sergeant. She had served for over 20 years and she was planning on retiring soon. Scott and Karen had three kids, two daughters and a son, and they were a busy bunch. Martina, one of the Marshall daughters, said that they were always busy. Both of her parents served, and then when her father retired, he became a pilot for United Airlines, so they often traveled. And well, the two Marshall daughters followed in their parents' footsteps, also joining the Air Force. On the Sunday when Devin opened fire at Sutherland Springs, well, that was Scott and Karen's very first Sunday at the church. They had actually just moved to the area from the D.C. area and they were just testing out the church. Sadly, the couple would not survive the attack. Scott was shot three times. None of his wounds were immediately fatal. However, as first responders arrived on scene, they found Scott shouting, my beautiful wife, my wife, help my wife. First responders attempted to stop Scott's bleeding and took him outside but the bleeding was way too much and he passed away outside the church. Karen was also shot three times and she did not survive. Peggy Warden attended church that Sunday with her 18-year-old grandson, Zachary Poston. Before attending church that day, 56-year-old Peggy Warden had experienced great loss in 2017. Earlier that year, her husband Christopher died from lung cancer and just the month prior in October, Peggy's father passed away. But even with the tremendous loss that she had suffered, Peggy found comfort in church. She loved volunteering and serving others. Peggy lived on a farm and her daughter Jennifer also lived on the farm, but in a separate house. And the two ladies really enjoyed each other's company. On that frightful Sunday morning, Peggy and Zachary had breakfast together. Then Zachary went to Sunday school. When big church service began, Zachary sat next to his grandmother. And when the shooting first started, Zachary saw the holes from the bullets coming through the walls. He then yelled for everyone to get down. Then he and his grandmother went under the pews, where Peggy covered her grandson with her body. Peggy did not survive the five gunshot wounds. However, Zachary survived seven gunshot wounds. Married couple Keith and Deborah Braden attended church with their 29-year-old son, Robert Braden, and their six-year-old granddaughter, Z. Keith and Deborah were married for 33 years, and they had three kids. Keith was an Army National Guard veteran, and as reported by CNN, Keith had recently undergone chemotherapy. 
On Sunday, November 5th, Deborah and Keith arrived at church and their daughter Elizabeth was there with their granddaughter Z. Once the couple arrived, Elizabeth left church, leaving Z in her grandparents' care. Also at church on this Sunday was Keith and Deborah's son, Robert, who was behind the sound booth making sure that everything sounded good at church. Once the church shooting began, everything was a blur. When the shooting was over, Robert checked on his family. First up was his father, Keith. He still had a light pulse. He checked on Deborah and Z, and they were alive. Robert then returned to his father, Keith, to tell him that everyone else was okay. And that's when Keith squeezed his son's hand, and then he passed away on the floor of the church. Deborah survived, and she recalled that during the shooting, quote, if you moved, you got shot. If you screamed, you got shot, end quote. Deborah survived multiple gunshot wounds, but she recalled that when she looked over at six-year-old Z, her stomach was blown open. She tried to remain calm as to not freak the little girl out. She took her shirt off to cover Z's wounds and then just cuddled her and sang, Jesus loves me, until first responders arrived. The little girl survived three gunshot wounds and she was in bad shape. She underwent many, many major surgeries. Keith did not survive. He sustained seven gunshot wounds. It is reported that none of his gunshot wounds were immediately fatal. It's likely that he bled out. So at this point, you might think that the story ends here. The sole shooter is dead. The victims have been named and a community must rebuild. And yes, that is all true. But as soon as this happened, everyone wondered, how could a man with a domestic violence conviction legally buy a gun? And the Air Force was scrambling to find out what happened. But Devin Kelly's backstory goes way beyond that. And the aftermath of the fifth deadliest mass shooting in U.S. history to date will leave you with more questions than answers. But I will bring you all of that next time on Military Murder. On this episode, I wanted to focus on the victims versus just saying Devin Kelly killed 26 people and then just moving it along. That is often how things are reported in mass casualties. However, that is not how I wanted to remember the victims. Everyone in that church had a story, and many of them had stories similar to ours. They had experienced great loss. They had experienced decades of military service only to die under a church pew at the hands of a veteran. I wanted to know their story, and I am sure you did as well. Part two is available right now if you join my Patreon at patreon.com slash military murder or by signing up for my Apple premium subscription. Part two will be available to everyone else in two weeks. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at Military Murder Podcast. This episode was researched by Haley Gray Research. This show was created by Mama Margot Productions, produced in collaboration with all of my bootcamp and higher fan club members. This month's executive producers are Jen, Tina, Alicia, Bob, Falcon 13, and Nicole. This month's newest associate producer is Chenille. This month's newest assistant producers are Jennifer O, Leslie, Ninja Panda Bear, and Tracy M. The theme song was created by TyOps. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of, so remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week, and I'll keep digging to bring you the rest of this military murder tragedy next time. Mm-hmm.